Oh, Patrick, dear, and did you hear the news that's going round? The shamrock is by law forbid to grow on Irish ground. St. Patrick's Day no more will keep, his color can't be seen. For there's a cruel law again, the wearin' o' the green. Wherein must we leave you, driven by a tyrant's hand? Must we ask a mother's blessing from a strange and distant land? Where the cruel cross of England shall ne'er more be seen, and where, please God, we'll live and die, still wearing o' the green. The Wearing of the Green, 1864. Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 17, I Know Nothing. Immigration, Catholicism and Anti-Catholicism, and the American Party. We've discussed the later waves of immigration, its impact on politics, and the views of Northerners briefly. Today, however, we'll look in more detail at the great reaction in Northern politics to the onslaught of a new cultural element in America. Make no mistake, this was a serious divide that could have radically altered the history we know. Now, we've discussed that waves of Catholic immigration following 1848 led to backlash as the newcomers settled in American states and cities, a movement broadly called nativism. It may be difficult to imagine the depths of feeling that this Catholic settlement provoked in the minds of many Americans, partly because the integration over the next hundred years made the issue vanish almost entirely. However, remember that groups such as the Ku Klux Klan would still be violently opposing Catholics into the 1920s and 30s. You can well imagine how people in the 1850s reacted, and today we'll discuss that. To begin with, the issue is complicated because the opposition to immigration could take many forms or ostensible reasons. Many Anglo-Americans had a long-standing dislike for Catholics in general, owing to Old English prejudices dating back to the Elizabethan era or even earlier. New England in particular had a long-standing Puritan loathing of Catholicism, a deep distaste which prospered even in the near-complete absence of Catholics for several centuries. Hanging the Pope in effigy, for instance, was surprisingly common during the Revolutionary period, even though there were very few Catholics, and even fewer open ones, in all of New England, and this continued for years into the early Republic. Also, historians have confirmed that there weren't very many popes running around the United States. These beliefs didn't merely manifest in a general dislike of Catholicism, either. Many Americans held various conspiratorial theories concerning Catholics. In the minds of many, Catholics were potential foreign agents, always ready to subvert American democracy and install an entire evil cadre of bishops to rule over the people. Now, Anglicanism might or might not be exempted in this view. Evangelicals often had similar issues with the Church of England. But American evangelicals more or less viewed that, well, according to them, there was simply no telling what those darn Catholics might get up to if not carefully watched and kept in their place by good, honest men and popes and cardinals were largely viewed as, well, more or less devils in human skin and outright depicted as such in political cartoons. Now, this opinion was emphatically not universal throughout the colonies or later states. The Mid-Atlantic region, for instance, was much more exposed to trade and travel and usually less scandalized by either moral failings or cultural or religious differences. There had been Catholics in those regions for quite some time. Now, this did not always mean acceptance of those differences, just that it was less noteworthy and less concerning to the still Protestant majority. Somewhat similarly, many in the South were strongly Anglican of the high church variety, and were not especially fearful of Catholics, at least in the cities. They weren't particularly scandalized by the presence of bishops. 
And additionally, the South had a long history and commercial ties with the Caribbean. The oldest Catholic churches in the United States sat squarely south of the Mason-Dixon. Now, this took on a new twist with the spread of American sovereignty over the Louisiana Purchase, which of course led to the incorporation of very Catholic New Orleans as the leading commercial entrepot of the South. The Mexican-American War, of course, joined Catholic New Mexico and California into the American story as well. Nonetheless, a very strong undercurrent of anti-Catholicism remained, with its powerful conspiratorial bent. Invented conspiracies seem to be a long-standing feature of American civic culture, where it seems one's enemies can never be too subtle, clever, diabolical, omnipresent, and their wicked plans can never ever be too grandiose. At least, of course, as long as they remain safely in the realm of imagination. For an example of this in action, we can look at the wild story of Rebecca Reed. In 1832, Reed went to stay at the Ursuline Sisters Convent close to Boston, in order to gain a quality education. At no charge, actually. She apparently grew to dislike it and, well, eventually left, settling in nearby Charlestown. This was all well and good, but two years later, in July of 1834, a nun of the Ursuline Order left the convent for a day before the bishop came round and persuaded her to return. Nothing really ought to have come of this, but afterwards wild rumors began circulating about the alleged atrocities being conducted at the convent. According to these rumors, innocent young girls, possibly Protestant, were being held there by force, tortured, or otherwise abused. Now, the allegations appear to have been entirely false. These stories mixed gossip about the nun and Miss Reed into a firestorm of increasingly wild allegations as the rumors went from person to person. As a result, within two weeks a mob formed and began threatening the convent with destruction unless they turned over the unnamed woman who had, in their eyes, briefly escaped the convent's clutches. Now, they dispersed after the town selectmen toured the facility and declared that there was no reason for any violence. Unfortunately, this proved only a temporary measure, and within hours the mob reformed and attacked the convent, causing serious damage but fortunately not harming the students, sisters, or priests. Attempts to control the situation the next day were not successful as even more damage was inflicted upon the site. In a span of less than 24 full hours, the work of 10 years was destroyed, even including the gardens and orchards, damaged entirely beyond repair. The legacy of the event did not end there. Rebecca Reed, mentioned above, published her story the year afterwards with rather considerable exaggeration and not a little wild invention. But she sold over 200,000 copies and sparked a wave of increasingly crazy anti-Catholic horror stories, published as true, but mostly consisting of, well, recycled Gothic horror fiction. Meanwhile, back in Boston, the convent quickly folded. Catholics remained, of course, but the monastic order simply could never get the financial support needed to rebuild. Threats against the sisters persisted, and contributed to their final journey out and away from the city for good. Soon, however, a new breed of Catholics would be back, and in greater numbers. Now, there were other sides to nativism besides conspiracy theories. Anti-Irish sentiment was particularly prevalent in the urban centers of the East Coast. This was related to but not the same as direct anti-Catholic feeling. We've mentioned long-standing anti-Irish views, but perhaps didn't explain them very well. Here is simply a short version. For no especially good reason, the English had a very old prejudice against the Irish. 
We could go into some depth or background on why this might have been, but the gist is that any cultural difference was considered a sign of Irish backwardness, in pure defiance of any and all logic and fact. This could go to very strange places, depending on just when we're talking about in history and only on the subject of religion, the Irish were either too Catholic, not Catholic enough, or were just Catholic at all once England went Protestant or semi-Protestant, depending on your views of the Anglican Church and the exact monarch or parliamentary faction in charge at any given time. Somehow, the Irish managed the impressive feat of always being wrong for a thousand years on everything. While viewing themselves as the rightful lords of Ireland, the English, from monarchs to nobles, never entirely deciphered Irish culture and proved largely incapable of co-opting, integrating, or assimilating the Irish. Until the English Civil War, England was unable to directly impose its will upon Ireland, and thereafter could only do so at the price of keeping a sizable army at the ready in Ireland at all times. Even after functionally reducing the Irish to near slavery, the English were almost always foreign masters surrounded by a sea of Irishmen, who were never more than a few steps away from revolt. This is, of course, a wild simplification. There were better times and there were worse times. But it does help to explain, in very brief detail, a long-standing grudge between two cultures that found themselves mixed. Furthermore, it's also worth noting that anti-Irish views showed a twisted mirror to pro-slavery views. Englishmen, and later many Americans, openly declared that the Irish were simultaneously lazy and yet ready to disobey their quote-unquote betters and rebel at the drop of a hat. In reality, of course, the Irish did revolt very frequently, and unrest was common even in the best of times, but they did immense amounts of work. The Irish were openly called uncultured and uncouth, and unfit to live alongside good Englishmen or Anglo-Americans. That is, they kept their own culture, and were denied good education, and had somewhat different values. Many Englishmen, or British subjects, and later Americans proudly viewed themselves on a God-given mission to civilize the Irish. Irish civilization is, if anything, substantially older than English. Now, this doesn't mean that the Irish were universally hated, and in fact, effectively, all the old legal restrictions on the Irish Catholics had slowly been phased out by the time the 1840s rolled around. Yet at the same time, the economic domination of Britain over the Irish actually increased during the mid-19th century. English and Scottish landlords controlled most of Ireland's, well, land. During the famine years, the economic position of Irish tenants simply became worse than an already poor lot. Many landlords judged that Irish tenants were more trouble and expense than they were worth, and backed by armed soldiers, frequently booted them off and demolished their houses. As we've discussed, hundreds of thousands fled to America. It was just about the only place to go. Once in America, however, these immigrants were not inclined to back off and subordinate themselves to the Protestant, often Anglo-American, majority. For one thing, there was no British army standing at the ready to quash dissent. For another, the northern wing of the Democrats was more than willing to accommodate this new voting bloc. For a third, however, the opposition they encountered was deeply hostile and yet not able to directly stop the Irish in any way. This is a key facet of why the Irish settled in many of the major port cities of the north. Simply put, they found economic opportunities there and were tired of unprofitable tenant farming. They faced at times deeply entrenched hostility from at least a sizable portion of the existing population. Yet this opposition had very little legal recourse to do anything about immigration. 
Apart from that, however, there was just not much to be done directly, apart from making the Irish feel very unwelcome. In America, the Irish found they couldn't be restricted or blocked as they so often were in their own home country. Now, speaking of making people unhappy, the third pillar we need to discuss here is prohibition. Now, you might immediately point out that prohibition really belongs to the early 20th century. After all, that's when the 18th Amendment was made law. And you'd be completely right. But there was an earlier wave of prohibition, mostly concentrated in the Northeast. It affected both public culture and led to a desire for legal reform that would eventually result in the 18th Amendment. America in the 19th century was slightly pickled. Although coffee and tea were commonly available, many of the non-alcoholic drinks we have today simply didn't exist, or at least were uncommon and expensive. Fresh juice and milk might be seasonal and local if available at all, especially seeing as refrigeration remained very expensive and limited. Now, clean water sources were usually available now. That at least was much improved over previous centuries. Nonetheless, hard liquor was popular on a scale difficult to imagine today. Something like 80-90% to 90 of alcohol consumption came in the form of spirits, often whiskey, wine being uncommon and beer less popular, although swelling alongside the German population. Now this, you may can imagine, may have represented a habit of erratic binge drinking, and we'll have cause to look at that down the road. In this era, the rising importance of women within the household led to an explosion of social improvement efforts and activism. And one very important early movement along these lines was temperance. Across the United States, the movement spread a gospel of teetotalism, which has left a legacy even to this day. I do mean gospel almost literally, as it was strongly associated with evangelical Christianity, and spread in the same ways and often by the same individuals. Evangelicalism tended to spread anti-alcohol views very strongly, and even today, many such churches oppose freely available liquor. As a side note, teetotalism, or complete abstinence from alcohol, gets its name from this period. Campaigners would pass around pledges and people would sign them. Voluntarily, people would add a T next to their signature to indicate abstinence, hence teetotal. In and of themselves, these measures and campaigns might not be viewed directly as an anti-Catholic measure, but in practice it was often taken as such at the time. Both Irish Catholics and German ones held long-standing traditions involving social drinking, perhaps even more than the English love of ale, and they regarded attempts by outsiders to control their drinking as ludicrous or even tyrannical. To them, teetotalism was simply social control by powerful outsiders. And even in this time, the teetotal movement did have a coercive aspect. Several northeastern states, starting with Maine, banned liquor in the mid-19th century as the temperance movement switched from individual moral reform to complete social reform, or even arguably revolution. Eventually, 12 states passed Maine laws to tightly restrict the sale of alcohol. Now, over time, these laws fell by the wayside and were either defeated in the courts or rescinded by legislatures. And enforcement in this era tended to be lax and punishment relatively rare. It did, however, contribute to a certain amount of bad blood. One additional aspect of Catholic immigration was that it both strengthened and fought against the temperance movement. Catholic immigration, and particularly Irish here, resulted in a lot of poor people who lived through very traumatic times flooding into American cities. Their additions to the nation's culture caused no less friction than any other wave of immigration, and probably accelerated the temperance movement's desire to see the streets cleaned up, metaphorically and maybe literally. However, 
Over time, Catholics also proved to be a voting bloc deeply opposed to temperance, and they pushed back against the reformers. In any case, while we've looked at some very broad social movements, we now should look at the actual American party that existed. This turns out to be surprisingly difficult because it was something almost unprecedented in American politics to that date. A secret society. At least in public, the American party tried very hard to keep itself an unknown force. Nonetheless, its history really isn't a great mystery. In 1852, two New York-based political clubs joined to form a new, combined, nativist party. Now, they would eventually formally rebrand themselves as the American Party in 1855, but we will use those terms interchangeably. This faction quickly grew into a muscular political force. Its adherents tended to be young, and were either skilled workers or educated managers or other specialists. While not necessarily part of the economic elite, the average American party member had more education and income than most, and definitely more than most immigrants. You could think of them as being part of something like the Freemasons, well-off citizens with extra time who gathered into a club of their own, just with a very specifically political purpose. Intriguingly, we shouldn't be entirely fooled by the name of the thing. Many know-nothings were themselves immigrants, just Englishmen or Scots or even Irish Protestants. These groups perhaps had a bit stronger feeling about Catholics voting than most Americans, and chose their electoral stance accordingly. But whether American-born or not, whenever they were asked, they had to keep quiet. Any members of the party were to say, and I am not making this up, I know nothing, to which they evidently clung so tight that they became popularly billed as the know-nothings. The fact that they all responded with an obvious lie might have clued people in that something was going on. Members of the party had to swear to vote only for native-born candidates for office. However, the party as such did not always run its own candidates, but would endorse those it found acceptable even outside party lines. Their interests ranged across a wide array of reforms, and many sound quite similar to the platforms of Whigs or later on Republicans. This included education, temperance as mentioned, and clean government. Moreover, know-nothings at this time were broadly anti-slavery in outlook and sympathy which will, in fact, eventually lead to the party's dissolution. Now, we'll discuss that more from the Republican side later on, but the important thing to note here is that the American party was very strongly against the rape of Kansas, and this put them onto the same political side as all Free Soilers. On the specific subject of immigration, the Know-Nothings didn't necessarily believe that they could totally stop it, but they probably hoped to slow it, to put on quotas. Other goals could include raising the naturalization period before an immigrant could vote. Heading into the midterm election in 1854, and even later into 1856, the Know-Nothings possessed a strong movement in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast, potentially capable of deciding an election. So many immigrants were flooding into the cities that the nativist vote was diluted, but at the same time, the social pressure conversely strengthened the movement overall as voters chose the only anti-immigrant politics available. Nevertheless, the American Party simply never achieved the raw votes to control most states. In New York, for instance, the powerful Seward machine kept votes well in hand for the Whig Party and anti-nativism. That said, the Know-Nothings did achieve some startling successes elsewhere. Among other victories, they swept Massachusetts in 1854, enacting a sweeping range of new demands and restrictions on Catholics particularly targeting public education. And they did accomplish numerous other reforms locally, 
many of which were, at the very least, high-minded, such as increasing rights for women in divorce proceedings. At the height of their power, the American Party controlled 50 congressional seats, almost all within the rich and economically dynamic Northeast. However, as is often the case in politics, success breeds overreach and overreach creates backlash. The Massachusetts branch of the Know-Nothings first became an embarrassment and then a footnote. And although no one knew it at the time, the Know-Nothing movement, which seemed about ready to sweep over the North and perhaps become the leading party, instead was swept itself into the dustbin of history by a much stronger political force. In fact, that failure is specifically what ended up defining the Know-Nothings and their place in history. In 1856, they will contest the presidential election for the first and final time, putting up Millard Fillmore of all people, who had not enough pull to become a leader among the Republicans. They will fail and accomplish little more than spoiling the Republican hopes for early political success. Their inability to forge a successful third way will leave their voters few in number and also leave them with little to show for it. Most of their voters and members in the North quickly moved on to Republicanism instead, if they had not done so already. Finally, in 1860, the Know-Nothings effectively ceased to exist entirely, as even their voters in Maryland and Delaware, not exactly ferociously anti-immigrant hotbeds to begin with, tried to find a different compromise party in order to forestall tensions over slavery in Kansas. In the end, nativism accomplished nothing. It was a distraction from the real issues facing the country. It contributed very little apart from some random race riots over the years. It is no great surprise that the Republicans are going to sweep them into the dustbin of history. So join us next time when we investigate the rising party that will unite the North and do the aforementioned dustbin sweeping, the Republicans. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. I hope you'll come back next time for Episode 18, Rise of the Republicans.